Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor John Bandman. In case you haven't noticed, this morning is all about holding fast. So like in the late 1700s, all the great empires of the world exercised their power through their navy, and their navy was composed of wooden sailing ships, square-rigged wooden sailing ships, and the greatest of those ships was known as the frigate. The British and American frigates in the late late 1700s were the weapon. They were the uh, Aegis cruiser of the day. And if you were an ordinary seaman on one of these frigates, uh, the, the only thing you needed to know for sure was to hold fast, right? Because if your ship was coming into a squall and the, and the deck is pitching 20 degrees one way or the other, uh, I mean, you have to hold fast even on the deck. Don and I were on a cruise just this last uh, few, few months ago, and there's a big giant storm that we had to go around, but we heard about a ship that was caught in that storm, and they had like 100 people injured on that ship, on that cruise ship, including broken bones. So that's just being on a deck, and that's being on a ship with stabilizers, a big giant you know, cruise ship. But so these for these sailors on these frigates, these are smaller ships, they're, they're sailing ships, so they're rounded hulls. They're just pitching all over the place. And guess what? If the, if the master wants to shorten sail because of a squall, you're climbing up rat lines 100, 150 feet above the deck. And when you get up there, then you're going out on, the, on a yard arm right, the big pole that holds the sail, on a rope. They just hang a rope underneath it, and you're barefooted walking along a rope, and you're hanging onto the yard arm, and you're gathering in the sail. Therefore, right, hold fast. You got, if you do nothing else, you got to hang on as, as a sailor at that time. So this morning, we're going to look at one of the first revelation, as we've talked about, is a letter, right? And contained within this letter, the first two and three chapters of this letter are are individual specific letters to seven individual specific churches. And we've already learned, uh, as Pastor Robert taught, that these seven churches represent the church universal. They represent every church at every time throughout the church age. Okay? So Jesus is writing to the churches. He is writing to the Renaissance church. And what he's going to say in the church, in this first letter, happens to be the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians. He's going to say, hold fast to my love. Hold fast to the love of Christ. All right. That's the title for this morning. Hold fast to the love of Jesus. So let's go. Let's go. Let's get into it. And before we do, I want to just open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you, God, that you have given us, Lord Jesus, you have written us a letter personally addressed to us, your church. Father, and and these letters really have the tone of, of a dad, a parent, a mom writing 
to her child who's gone off to college, maybe freshman in college or first year. And it's a letter of, of intense love and it's a letter of care, of deep admonition to say, hey, remember the love that we have for you. Remember the call and purpose the Lord has put in your life. Stay faithful to that. Lord, help us, God, to hear that message this morning as you declare it to each one of us and to us as a family, as a church, as citizens of your kingdom. In your son's name, amen. So uh, just to kind of set this up, I want to go back into chapter 1, verse 9. There's a, there's a verse here that we looked at last week. It just kind of summarizes and characterizes each one of these seven letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches. And I want, to pay, want you to pay attention to the three elements of this verse in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, number one, and the kingdom, number two, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, number three. These three elements, the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus, we're going to see all three of these elements in every one of these seven letters. And we will certainly see it in this first letter to the Ephesians. And it's interesting. I just love this verse because what Jesus is saying is, look, I recognize, church, that you live in tribulation, that this life is hard. This life is painful. There's breakdown. There's breakdown between us as a church family at times. There are times when we hurt each other's feelings. There's times when we disappoint each other. There's breakdown with you and your, and your blood family. There are times when we feel betrayed by our family. There are times when we're just totally grieved and disappointed by our family. We live in tribulation. And Jesus is saying, I get that. I see that. I understand that. Also, right alongside that reality is you belong to my kingdom. You are citizen of heaven. You are my child. You belong to me. And I have you. Number three, because of that, you will have patient, you'll be able to endure this tribulation while being a member of my king kingdom because of who I am, because of the way I've taken hold of you, because of the way I love you. Amen? So this is, this is really the, the message that Jesus is going to say over and over again as he writes to each one of these churches, and he's going to say it in very specific ways to each one of these churches. Each one of these churches have a different set of contexts, a different set of issues, but it's the same basic theme repeated seven times. So we're going to look at the first one. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold, golden lampstands. So what is he talking about? Do we remember from last week? The seven stars, what do they represent? Seven stars represent, if you go up, up a couple verses, 
Verse 20 in chapter 1 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so Jesus is describing two really important characteristics of himself. And he's going to do this for every letter to every church. Every letter is going to start off with Jesus describing a particular essential characteristic of himself. And for this letter, he's saying the, the words of him, meaning himself, who holds the seven stars. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. And we, re, we learned last week that the angels are the, of the church are the heavenly representatives of the church. So Renaissance Church... We operate in the real world, in the earthly realm, right? We're, we meet in this building. We're composed of a group of people in the flesh. And you can see Renaissance Church by looking at us. This is Renaissance Church. And, that's, and we have a particular identity. We have a particular kind of culture within our own church, a particular kind of characteristic that you get to know just as you get to know the people in this church, right? But we are also represented in the heavenly realm. Jesus himself sees Renaissance Church in the context of the heavenly realm. We have a heavenly identity in Christ. Okay, so there's kind of two sides to the coin, two sides to our church. It's what you see in the flesh right here. Um, but there's a spiritual heavenly reality that is just as real, even more real, actually, than what you see just looking around uh, this room right now. And Jesus says, look, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. What's significant about the right hand? The right hand is the dominant hand, the powerful hand, the hand that is skilled, the hand that is coordinated. Isn't it interesting that you do the finest little, you know, screw in the screw in your glasses with your dominant hand, whether you're right-handed or left-handed, and you swing a hammer with the same hand. Right? Your dominant hand does all the heavy lifting, and it also does the real nuanced fine work. I, th I think that's interesting. And Jesus is saying, I hold the church in that hand. Okay, I hold the church powerfully, and I hold the church skillfully. Okay, And this word, the, the Greek word that gets translated hold, it is a very strong, aggressive, powerful world, word, world, word. All right? So... This word is often translated as um, in the context of taking somebody into custody. The authorities taking a person to jail. That's the kind that that word gets used in terms of holding someone. You see a cop arresting somebody and putting the handcuffs on him. They would use this word. The cop is holding that person. Okay, it is a powerful, active, "I've got you" kind of word. And Jesus says. I powerfully hold you, church, in my strongest hand, my most skillful hand. Number one, he holds us. Number two, he walks among the seven gold lampstands. He says that the lampstands, again, represent the church, right? But the particular aspect of the church that the lampstand represents, as Robert taught last week, is our witness to the world. The way we shine God's love and grace and forgiveness to the world. And he walks among that lampstand. Just like the priests in the Old Testament 
would, would be in the Holy of Holies and they would tend to that giant menorah in the temple and they would make sure the flames don't go out on that menorah. And those flames represent the glory of God shining forth through, through his church. And it's the power of God that supplies that. There's a vision in Zechariah where, where Zechariah sees these, this lampstand and it is and it's got two live olive trees that are continuously flowing oil into that lampstand. And that represents God's power, God's spirit empowering God's people to be a light to the world. In that verse, it actually says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And they're talking specifically about Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, right? So those lampstands represent Jesus. It represents us empowered by Jesus to share in the love of Christ, to share the gospel, right? And it's Jesus who empowers that. It's Jesus who is trimming our wicks. It is Jesus that is providing the oil to those lampstands. So what we need to know about each one of these letters is Jesus isn't being random with describing his character in each one of these letters. Jesus is choosing an aspect of his character that relates directly to the strengths and weaknesses of the church that he's talking to. Okay? So the idea that Jesus holds the heavenly representative of the church in his strong right hand and that he's walking amongst the church as a lampstand applies directly to what he's about to say to the Ephesians, okay? And that'll be true for every one of these seven letters as we go through them. So let's take a look. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. You see that idea there, right? That patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus. The church at Ephesus has that. They are patiently enduring in the strength of Jesus Christ. And specifically, they're enduring false teaching. They are standing up to and calling out false teaching. Okay? They are a doctrinally sound church. They've got the truth of the gospel down. And when someone comes along that misrepresents who God is they, or misrepresents salvation or what it means to walk in salvation, they call that person out. They're not afraid to speak the truth and to call out false teaching. And that's a way that they are walking in the patient endurance of Christ in the midst of the tribulation of false teaching. Do we live in a world of false teaching? I mean, just go on the internet, right? I mean, just type three letters on the internet and you'll be inundated with false teaching. And this church ha understands the truth of the gospel. They understand scripture and they call out false teaching. They speak the truth. Amen. Good. Gold star from Jesus, right? But then we have verse four. But, and this is not what you want to have in your letter, but oftentimes we do have this in our letter, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
So they are doctrinally sound. They've got the truth all parsed out. They're squared off. They're squared away. They're solid doctrinally as a church. But they've forgotten the first love. They've lost their heart. They've got the head down really good. But somewhere along the way, they've just drifted away and lost the heart, the love of Christ, that original understanding that, of, oh my goodness, this, this is a God I can know. This is a God who came into the world in the flesh. This is a personal God. This is Jesus, right, who loves me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a personal God who loves us, who, who went to the cross for us to shed his own blood for us. They've lost sight of that. They've just gotten so focused on the head knowledge and getting everything all squared off. They forgot the compassion. They forgot the heart. They forgot the love, the motivation, right? This word that gets translated abandon, it, it has the idea of, of releasing of leaving, of letting go. We've often heard the phrase, you know, let go and let God. That's fine. Let go of the tribulation and let God, that's good. But just make sure that you're not letting go of God. Make sure that you're not going passive in terms of your love for Christ. It's, it's, and the contrast is, is really strong between Jesus is powerfully holding his, his church, right? But his church is passively just letting go of him. It's a very powerful contrast. And what's interesting here is that you can, as a church, you can be correct. You can have all the right orthodoxy, have all the right doctrine, be all squared away scripturally, and be completely missing the love of Christ, completely missing the heart. I, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, what does he specifically mean by but I have this against you that you have abandoned. And, and in verse five, he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do. What, what is he asking them to remember? What does that mean that they've, what, what is it specifically that they've fallen away? I mean, they've, they've lost their first love, but what is, what is the first love? And, and there's an Old Testament verse um, that I think Jesus is, of course, you know, Jesus is the author of the Old Testament verses as well as the New Testament verses, in case you haven't noticed that. And he says something, Jesus says something very similar through his prophet Isaiah, uh, through his prophet Jeremiah. Uh, and it's in Jeremiah chapter 2. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go just start with the verse 1, Jeremiah. He says, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah speaking, saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. Okay, this is Jesus talking, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not seen. Think about the love of a bride. Think about when you were first married, if you're married. Think about your bride or your groom. Think about how excited they were, how giddy they were, how lit up they were. I've never seen a bride that's not just absolutely beautiful and lit up with the light of joy 
at marriage, as well a groom. I mean, you look at a guy who's standing up in front, you know, waiting for his bride to come down the aisle, and of course he's nervous. You can see the nervousness, but you can also see like, come on, bring it, man. I'm ready. I've been waiting for this a long time, right? That is the love that Jesus is talking about with the church at Ephesus. He's saying, remember that love. Remember that passion. Remember that great joy that you had when you first understood my love for you. When you first understood the forgiveness I was extending to you. When you first understood that I was promising you an eternity and a new body and a new creations and a new heaven and a new earth. And all of what that means, remember that love. And he's saying, church, you've lost that love. You've forgotten it. You've gotten so focused on being right. You've forgotten about why be right in the first place. Why it's important to be right because of my love, my great passion for you. He continues in Jeremiah, a few verses down and four. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness, catch this, and became worthless. You are what you pursue. You want to pursue worthlessness, you will become worthless. You want to pursue, pursue the love of Christ, you will become the love of Christ. Further down in verse 8, he says, The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Catch this, those who handle the law, those who handle the very word of God, did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. This is what it means to, to abandon the first love, to abandon our first love. We could have the law of God in our hands and still not know the Lord. At one point, Jesus says, you know, people are going to come to me and they're going to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these great works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you wicked sinner. That is a scary, that's the scariest verse in, I think, the whole Bible. Do you know the love of Christ? Forget about your attendance at church, forget about, you know, you're an American citizen and, and generally in a, uh, with a Christian heritage. Forget all that. Do you know Christ? Have, do you know his love, his salvation? The little ones do, right? Jesus says, suffer the little ones to come to me out of the mouth of babes. It's like they get it, sometimes in a much deeper way than we do. Let's continue in Ephesians. I mean, <laughs> Ephesians. In Revelation, talking about the Ephesians. We'll, we may go to the Ephesians in a moment. We'll see. Um, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you, you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Notice there's three things Jesus is admonishing them to do. Remember, number one, remember from where you've from where you have fallen, repent, which we all know just means turn around, change your mind, go totally different direction. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. Let me put it this way. Remember the loving salvation you have in Jesus Christ. Number one, repent 
and hold fast to his love, number two, and do the work of walking out his love to your neighbor. As Jesus is walking amongst the, the, the lampstands and reminding on us of his love and his power, it enables us to be a light to a lost world, to express the love of Christ to a world that is perishing, that has grown cold, that is only thinking about itself and how it can satisfy itself. Amen. Jesus, there's a uh, the verse that says, they'll know you're Christians by your love. It's a song, right? How do they know we're Christians? How does our light shine bright? Because of our love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's the consequences of the church of Ephesus ignoring what Jesus is saying? They're no longer there. He removes their lampstand. Does that mean everybody loses salvation? No, but the witness of that church is taken away, is gone. That church is no longer there to be a witness to the world. There are a few in that church, some in that church, who are saved and come, come to salvation and who are in heaven, but the church as a witness is gone. Jesus wants to encourage them, give them one last word. After the admonition, he gives them one last encouragement, which, by the way, is a good form to follow. Start with what's positive, share the correction, and end with, with something positive. He says, um, uh, for, remember, there, okay, I'm going to pick it up on five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which again speaks to their doctrinal purity. Nicolaitans, a lot of debate on exactly what their heresy was, but the, the main justice is they, they have the teaching that, well, once you're saved in Christ, you confess his name and you have salvation, then you can just do whatever you want. And you can sin to whatever degree, it doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, Jesus will just deal with that. Of course, that's not the teaching of scripture, right? If you're, if you're in Christ, then you're, you, you will have fruit. We'll see the result of that. And one of the results of that is you continue to grow in moral purity. Uh, so they, they just won't accept false teaching, which is a real strength of the church. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to see, eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Okay, you're going to see the same formula repeated all seven times. And sometimes it's um, to the one who conquers go for, goes first, and sometimes he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit goes first. But you're going to say that to every one of the churches. So we need to pay attention to that, right? So what does he mean by he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches? What that means is you can hear it and not hear it and not have an ear to hear it. What he's saying is, look, for some of you, what I'm saying right now, what Jesus is saying right now is just going right past you. And you're thinking, okay, I'm getting hungry. What's for lunch, et cetera, et cetera, right? You don't have an ear to hear it. And it happened, Jesus would preach. He would tell stories. He would tell parables. Some would get it. A few would get it. Most would not, 
right? Does that mean Jesus was a bad preacher? No, that means depending on where we are and, and the stance we've taken with our heart, we're in a place to hear it or we're not in a place to hear it. And that's between you and the Lord this morning. Are you in a place to hear that Jesus is awesome, that you hold scripture highly, that you respect its authority and you, and you build a life around that? But don't forget my love. Don't forget your first love. Do you have an ear to hear that this morning? Jesus recognizes, you know what? I understand that you live in tribulation. I understand that you experience disease and breakdown. Suddenly and out of the blue, tragedy strikes. And it's hard and it's painful and it takes a huge toll. I get that. Donna gets that. Many in this congregation get that. And Jesus is saying, I, I understand that. But he's, but he's saying, look, I love you in the midst of that. You belong to me. I hold fast to you. Don't forget that. Don't forget my first love. Some of us have family members that we're just like, really, Lord? Oh, my gosh. What the heck? We've been betrayed by them. We've been disappointed by them. We've been grieved by them. And Jesus is saying, look, I understand that. I see that. You're in tribulation, but that in no way diminishes my power, my strength, and my love for you. Do not forget, as you're going through tribulation, the love I have for you. Don't walk away from that. Don't become indifferent to me. To the one who conquers, to the one who has victory in this, to the one who's able to hang on to Jesus and stay close to Jesus through his own power, even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of hardship, he says this, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember Genesis chapter 2, right in the beginning of the book, the tree of life. God puts Adam and Eve in this garden, and there's two significant trees in there. One is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, you can eat anything you want. You have thought you can create what you want in this garden and manage it and build it into this beautiful, amazing garden city. Just only one thing, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And of course, immediately, that's where the fallen angel tempts them to eat. Right? God never tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of life. They could have eaten from the tree of life right at the beginning, right at the outset. But they didn't. Instead, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what Jesus is saying is, look, those who overcome in my strength and my power and my salvation, I'm going to grant to you to finally, finally eat from the tree of life, which means to live forever in eternity in a new heavens and a new earth with a resurrected body that has capacities that we can't even dream of. That's good news, is it not? It's interesting, the menorah in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle was, was sculpted and shaped like what? A tree. It, was the, it represented the tree of life, correct? And it's Christ who keeps the tree of life brightly shining and glowing. 
And he, and he says, he promises to those of us who overcome, to those of us who stay in the love of Christ, we will shine brightly in this world. And ultimately, we will eat from that tree of life. We will have eternal life. We will have the full consummation of everything we have ever desired and everything we felt like we were created for will find its consummation and its fullness in that moment of salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I recognize, I, I even confess, Lord, there are times, particularly when life is hard and difficult and painful, that I want to just release your love for me. That I just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to deal with it anymore, Lord. And I want to walk away and I, I become hard and I become impatient and I become lost, God, in the grief of this world. And you are saying this morning to each one of us, I have not forgotten you. In fact, I hold you dearly, powerfully, skillfully, in my powerful right hand. And I love you. Do not forget my love for you. Do not forget that I went to the cross. I went all the way. I went to the wall for you. And I gave up my own life. And I knew what it meant to be separated as sin from my father, who I, who I have been with from before time. I get it. Hold fast. And I will empower you to be a conqueror, to live victoriously, even in the midst of tribulation, by staying close to my love, to, to holding on to my love. God, empower us. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Help us to hold fast to your love this morning. In your son's name, amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.